Are you ready to make positive transformation happen for you? Today, you're going to hear how some of the most successful people in the world have made it happen. Hello, and welcome to Transformational Energy Leadership with Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. These successful people and Dr. Woolsey will share advice, insights, tips, and tricks designed to help you incite personal action. It's time to bring positive transformational leadership to your life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey. And welcome to your weekly installment of Transformational Energy Leadership. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey, coming to you live from the heartland of America. That's right here in Beatrice, Nebraska. Now, today's show is called Transformational Leadership Through Influence. And before we get started, you can, to all the listeners out there during the commercial break, go to my website. That's transformationalenergyleadership.com. And of course, I love emails. So you can email me at mwolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. You can also find me on social media. That's on LinkedIn and Facebook. And go to this network. That's Voice America. under the empowerment channel and to the listening audience this is a live show you've got a comment a question we welcome you in this dialogue today so today we're talking about transformational leadership through influence and my guest today is Rob Manis now just a quick snapshot he's a retired colonel from the US Air Force he has extensive corporate experience and he now owns his own company where among other things offers consulting services and organizational leadership and this guy's got the credentials he graduated cum laude from the University of Tampa holds three master's degrees that's right three one from Harvard University's Kennedy School the Air Command and Staff College and the US College of Naval Warfare all right so we're all queued up. Rob, are you ready to go? I am ready to go, Dr. Matt. Just good to be with you. (laughs) Well, welcome to the show. You know, Rob, as we get started, there's a lot more to your story that I left out. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us a bit more about you, you know, about your journey and and weave in there your leadership journey from, you know, wherever you want to start to where you are now. Well, sure. Uh, and again, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and discuss my favorite subject, which is leadership. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, leadership is one of those things that uh, sometimes is beyond the individual's reach, but as part of a team, it's never beyond your reach, especially successful leadership. So, you know, I I, I started my life as a as a what they call a military brat. My daddy was a, a master sergeant in the United States Air Force. Uh, my, my three brothers and I, I'm number three out of four. Uh, my three brothers and I uh, uh, traveled around with my mom and dad all over the country and all over the world. We've lived in places like uh, the Mojave Desert uh, out in Edwards, California at the time when the space program was just getting off the ground and men named like Neil Armstrong and, uh, and Gus Grissom were flying experimental jets out there. And we've lived in places like North Africa uh, in the early 1970s where it was a great, uh, a great uh, 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 cultural uh, shift there that led to uh, attempts by one the Moroccan Air Force in Morocco is where we lived and one by the Moroccan Army where they tried to dethrone the, uh, the royal family. <clears throat> and we found ourselves living in the middle of a, uh, of, uh, uh, of coup d'etat attempts and civil war and those kind of things, all thanks to my dad's uh, 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 
position in the U.S. Air Force. Wow! Uh, but uh, but you know, <clears throat> eventually he retired and they moved back, to, uh, moved us back to Western Tennessee, where my mother and father are both from, uh, just about sixty miles northeast of Memphis, and uh, graduated from high school a few years later at the age of seventeen and enlisted in the U.S. Air Force myself. And uh, you know, as a a seventeen year old young man, uh, there were. Uh, many, many opportunities for leadership. Uh, my first uh, job in the Air Force was explosive ordnance disposal for civilians out there. That's a uh, bomb disposal technician. So uh, we, once we graduated from a very tough training uh, school uh, that had over a 50% attrition rate, uh, the, uh, so I felt very fortunate being a, a 17-year-old kid, really, uh, to have the ability to be able to get through that, but we worked in two-person teams uh, uh, is what we worked in, and it wasn't very long. I was only 19 a few years later that I found myself uh, being a team leader uh, and, and getting promoted early, uh, and it wasn't because uh, I uh, uh, was really exceptional. I consider myself average, but it was because I had had good, uh, uh, you know, good mentorship and, and a good example of, to watch. My grandfather was a farmer, plus he was also a custodian at his kid's school, you know. So, so I had independent men and women uh, uh, that I observed and spent time with. My dad, of course, was a, a non-commissioned officer in the U.S. Air Force, uh, and. Uh, uh, so he he was one of those people that we looked up to, and of course my mother, who military moms and wives uh, have the toughest job, uh, and it takes leadership uh, and uh, setting a good example and be you know kind of being the cheerleader of the family and those kind of things. So I had some good examples to uh, follow, but I found myself being a leader uh, of uh, two person bomb disposal teams uh, at, at the tender age of nineteen. I was a sergeant already. And uh, we went from there, and eventually I was able to finish college uh, at the University of Tampa, as you mentioned, uh, uh, and got commissioned in the U.S. Air Force. And that in and of, of itself was a leadership opportunity uh, to uh, go from uh, experienced uh, as a non-commissioned officer to being inexperienced as a brand-new second lieutenant and learning to fly as a navigator, uh, it, you know, because uh, in those days, uh, I went from being a formal leader as a, as a, a team leader uh, to being a more informal leader and, and trying to set a good example. Uh, uh, so, so I think my point with that is you always have to uh, be mindful of the shifts in life and your position in life as you go through life and apply these principles that we pick up along the way, either through examples, through study, uh, of especially biographies and historical biographies through study of history uh, and, and individuals' actions in history and those kind of things uh, so that you're aware, and that's part of the trait of a good leader is, is very good self-awareness of what your role is, what your role should be, uh, and how you're presenting yourself in order to achieve the objective of whatever it is you're doing, whether it's in the family or it's part of a military team, or if it's part of a community organization that's trying to make things better for, for those that are less fortunate. Uh, and the principles apply all along the way. It's just a matter of how well we are able to recognize uh, what the situation is, how aware we are of ourselves and those around us. So eventually I uh, started getting promoted and uh, shifted over to from air refueling aircraft to bomber aircraft and the B-1 bomber and 
had the opportunity to lead at the Pentagon. I was uh, on the joint staff there, uh, working for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense. I was what's called a nuclear operations officer, so I was responsible. Uh, I was actually the sole individual responsible for NATO's nuclear command and control system and communications and computer system uh, and the operations rules that go along with it and making sure those systems work, that the people were trained properly and were able to do their job uh, was my main uh, assignment. And then uh, as a side assignment, I was also responsible for building uh, building war plans, uh, uh, not at the strategic level, but at the operational level. Uh, so, you, you know, if there was a war plan that needed to be built for a specific uh, uh, potential adversary, uh, say, uh, uh, in one theater like the Pacific Theater, then I would be responsible, uh, my boss and I, for uh, developing that plan and leading the, leading the staffs, various staffs around the world to uh, get the plan properly written, and, and again, that takes a leadership role. When I was a, I was a young major uh, in the Pentagon. When I got there, I was actually <clears throat> so junior. Uh, we have a tradition in the military that the junior officers are uh, they run the snack bars uh, in the in the organizations that they're assigned to. <laughs> I happen to run the snack bar in the National Military Command Center, the Pentagon snack bar. Uh, and was responsible for that. And then when I was introduced to the, to the Secretary of Defense, that's how I was introduced as the, the, the major that runs the best snack bar in the entire Department of Defense. <laughs> so, <laughs> what a legacy. You learn, huh? <laughs> your, learn your role, you know, and, uh, and, and you want to do your jobs well. Uh, but uh, so as a young major, I was responsible for leading staff that were manned uh, by much more senior uh, men and women uh, that had a lot more knowledge and experience than I did to to adequately field uh, you know war plans that are very serious business and uh, it was a great opportunity. I learned a lot uh, and really owe the folks that I worked with uh, uh, quite a bit. And eventually, I, after nine eleven, I was in the Pentagon on nine eleven and uh, helped with the recovery. And eventually, went back to work the next day to help plan the response. Uh, that turned out to ended up being Operation Enduring Freedom uh, and later Iraqi Freedom. And, they've been, and uh, uh, as part of that, I was, again, junior, but I was also part of the leadership team uh, that advised the President of the United States on, on what had happened, what we could do, what our capabilities were, and then help put those plans together uh, and uh, get them approved in order for us to respond to 9-11. But eventually I got selected not too long after that to go back and uh, command a B-1 bomber flying squadron uh, where uh, uh, as a navigator uh, in the U.S. Air Force, usually pilot, you know, it's known as that pilots run the Air Force, but uh, I was the first navigator in the history of the 9th Bomb Squadron to get the opportunity to command it. That's the oldest bomber squadron in, in the United States. Uh, it dates back to uh, June 14th, 1917. So, you know, I had a unique leadership position. In this case, I'm formally recognized, uh, but it's unique in that I'm, uh, I'm also leading uh, uh, amongst my peers uh, in that category of professional officers. So I wanted to set a good example and, and, and get their advice and, uh, along the way and, and set up a, a kind of like a sub team uh, as we approached our job there. And our job basically was to train uh, our maintenance personnel, our crew members and our support personnel and, uh, and train for combat. 
and then take our 14 B-1 bombers, our 250 maintenance personnel, and our 90 uh, air crew members and support personnel and deploy them overseas to actually fight in the combat uh, in the war that I helped plan at the Pentagon. So uh, eventually uh, I did a few deployments uh, with that uh, in that squadron. And uh, after 30 months of being in command and uh, second in command of the unit, I was selected for colonel and ended up going to Navy War College. Only about 25 Air Force officers a year go to Navy War College. And as again, another formal and informal leadership experience, uh, uh, you know, what's an Air Force guy doing going to the Navy War College? Well, well, we're, we're national security professionals, and the master's degree you get at the Navy War College is in, is in national strategy and international strategy uh, and, uh, and planning, and, and we want to have our best professionals uh, out there uh, setting our, putting our best foot forward. Uh, so I was selected to be one of four Americans in the international portion of the class, which had 50 international officers from all around the world. And uh, it was my responsibility to introduce them to America, uh, while at the same time being a student and studying for my own uh, academic courses. So, uh, so it was a great opportunity, great leadership opportunities, uh, uh, thrown into the mix language barriers, uh, uh, cultural barriers, obviously. Uh, we had men and uh, men from all around the world, South America, Central America, uh, the uh, uh, about 30% of them were from Middle Eastern countries. Uh, I had an Iraqi Christian naval officer uh, with us, uh, you know, the, those kind of folks, and, and then obviously uh, and then from NATO countries and those kind of things. So we had a great, great time and uh, learned a lot from each other and uh, was honored to have the privilege of leading those folks uh, to, to do my part as one of the four American leaders of that team. Uh, once I uh, left that, left the war college, I was asked to go do a job that I knew nothing about, and that was to be the vice commander of the 55th Wing at Offutt Air Force Base there near you, just uh, in Bellevue, just south of Omaha, Dr. Matt, and uh, oh, yeah. that's the Air Force's largest airborne intelligence uh, operation. We, our operations, uh, we have units in the Pacific and Okinawa and in Europe and in the UK, and they do operations uh, in their areas of responsibility over Europe and throughout the Pacific, and then and then we have a, a squadron that's been deployed since about uh, the airframes have been in the Middle East since 1990, early 1990, and we rotate crew members and maintenance personnel and aircraft through there every 90 days uh, at the location that they fly and uh, airborne intelligence missions from. Uh, so that was another unique opportunity to to uh, learn uh, learn that sub part of the profession of being uh, uh, a combat aviator in the Air Force in the intelligence world uh, when I had never done it before, but at the same time applying the leadership skills that I picked up along the way, uh, starting out as an enlisted guy and as a as a bomber squadron commander, uh, and that's exactly. Uh, what I did was uh, figure out where that position was and what its role was, and then I applied uh, uh, what I knew uh, to try to, uh, you know, improve the unit, uh, uh, give it more of a mission-oriented, uh, combat-oriented uh, focus uh, where it needed it, and uh, and continue to do the jobs that uh, those great Americans have been doing for decades. Yeah. There and eventually. <laughs> I uh, uh, became a wing commander uh, 
out in Albuquerque, New Mexico at Kirtland Air Force Base. It's the sixth largest uh, Air Force installation. It's about 53,000 acres, 23,000 personnel live and work there, uh, different Types of units, uh, Sandia National Laboratories is the largest unit. It's 11,000 folks, but it's primarily civilians uh, and those kind of things. So uh, just another opportunity to apply what leadership I knew uh, and then learn from folks that have been had been in that installation for a long time and put the two together in a combination that ended up being an award-winning unit uh, that uh, routinely rotated uh, folks into the combat zones, safely brought them back, took care of their families, uh, took care of our primary mission, which was a vital national security mission, uh, and uh, was very proud of the men and women. Uh, of the 377th Air Base Wing there for uh, for doing their uh, nuclear operations mission and their combat operations mission overseas. Uh, and, Rob, and then yeah, we retired, and I went into the uh, uh, utility business as a director of safety and training of a Fortune 500 company at Entergy Corporation. And again, uh, had to learn uh, from the folks that have been in that profession and that business for a long time, all the way down to the lowest level, because I was responsible for safety and technical training for the linemen, uh, uh, which are the, 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 the workers out in the field. Uh, you know, and, uh, so I had to take what I knew and combine it with what I could pick up very quickly, uh, from them. So I spent a lot of time out in the field, uh, which is what a leader should do. Uh, anyway, uh, getting, to letting them get to know me and me getting to know them. Uh, and I had learned to do these things all along the way through these various experiences, uh, and that's called leadership. Absolutely. Hey, and Rob, let's let's pause right there because obviously extensive experience here, and I want to dig deeper into the components of influence. We're at a, we're at a break right now, so what we'll do is when we – Come back on the other side. Let's talk more. We'll get, we'll get into the influence part. So sure. stay tuned. Go to my website, transformationalenergyleadership.com, and we'll see you after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Look 
get inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to the show. This is Transformational Energy Leadership, and we are talking about transformation leadership through influence. And in the first segment, I had Rob Mannis talk a bit about his background because it's very colorful, it's very interesting, and it's Definitely one full of all kinds of challenges and and opportunities, as Rob talked about, being a leader from starting at the age of 17 and all the way up to leading and and dealing with things in terms of terrorism and flying in in the Air Force and so forth. And Rob, I have to ask you before we start talking about influence, I'm just curious because you had so many high stakes situations, you know, with the terrorist bombing, being in in the Pentagon during 9-11 and so forth. How did you keep your cool? Well, uh, you know, first responders in the civilian world can identify with this, uh, and it's based on good training. Uh, the, the the training concepts uh, in the armed forces are, are, uh, are very well thought out. They're very detail-oriented, and, and they're, they're, they're trained and practiced over and over and over again to the point that when you get into a stressful situation like uh, like the Pentagon uh, attack on 9-11, the, your first instinct, your instinctive reaction is to start doing what you've trained to do over and over again. Uh, and, uh, and in a situation like the Pentagon one, uh, at that point I had, had about a 20-year Air Force career uh, so I, I had learned things like, I mean, it's things that you don't think about every day, uh, things like, uh, you know, when I was in Europe in the Cold War as a young airman in bomb disposal, one of the things we had to learn was uh, was what's called buddy care. It's first aid, combat first aid, uh, because you're not necessarily going to be around a doctor or a medic. Uh, and uh, and we applied, I applied that. That was one of the first things that I applied uh, after my duties uh, when we started recovering from the Pentagon attack within a, you know, a few minutes of the aircraft exploding inside the building. So, you know, you fall back on that training and it's, it's very in-depth. It's very, it's regular, uh, and it's practiced over and over again. And that's what makes the military a profession. You know, um, uh, that's, that's the main thing, uh, you know, and, and I, and I really, uh, my, Ability to do that goes all the way back to when I was 17 and, and the bomb disposal training class 
uh, was very difficult for me. I was very young. Uh, I was in a class with college graduates, uh, people from all the services that had a lot more experience than I, and I watched a lot of them fail. Uh, in a trip, in a, what we call a trip out of that class. And as I mentioned, there was a 50% uh, failure rate uh, in those classes. But uh, so I take, because one of the things they teach you is that, you know, try uh, to continue to do your job, which may be, uh, you know, analyzing a circuit board with wires that, that could blow up in your face any second now, while at the same time being shot at. Uh, uh, being threatened, uh, being bombed from the air or artillery at the same uh, same time. So, so those, that type of training uh, started from the very, very beginning. Uh, but it also uh, gave you, gave us that foundation to be able to respond appropriately in a stressful situation. And I applied that for the rest of my military career. I apply it today uh, whenever I'm in a stressful situation. Yes, and I, and the key takeaway there is every leader. You know, when you it, it, things can be learned, and then through practice and practice that those things just fall into place. I you know what I want to do is talk a, a bit about influence. So you know the Center of Creative Leadership say that the best leaders have four influencing skills, and I want to talk through those. And the first one is having political savvy or political intelligence, and what this means is you know leaders are able to embrace organizational politics to move teams and important initiatives forward. What experiences do you have where you were successful or maybe even not so successful in managing political savvy? Because often I, and the reason why I ask about that, maybe the, there was one that wasn't successful is sometimes those are often the best lessons. So anyway, I hand it to you, Rob. Well, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, you know, in my study for the show to refresh my memory and everything uh, on things, I read I read uh, your your questions and those kind of things. And that that trait is probably uh, my biggest challenge as a human being, as a man, as a dad, as a husband, uh, is the ability to be politically savvy. And whether it's a family organization or uh, uh, or, or a military organization or, or even a community organization. I think that's probably one, for me, from my perspective, I can't speak for anybody else. I think that's, that has been my biggest challenge. And, and I'll be honest, uh, my political savvy uh, was not that good up until I was very high ranking uh, in the Air Force. Uh, uh, had I been better at it, I might have, uh, you know, done better and gotten gotten promoted more and those kind of things. Uh, uh, and I think it was a key issue. And that is because I, it took me a while to learn uh, what the importance was of the human interaction with the organizational structure uh, uh, and get outside of, uh, of, of my head of here's my specific job. You know, I started in a job in the Air Force as a bomb disposal technician. I was very focused on doing that job to the best of my ability as an individual and focused on the, on the devices and the tactics, techniques, and procedures to, to make them safe so nobody got hurt, especially me. Uh, mm-hmm. But also, I mean, we do it for others, so, uh, so you're doing it for others, but you want to do it so that you're still around, too, after you're finished. Uh, and you, and have the opportunity to do it again. So, uh, but that focus, I think, uh, limited me in 
in trying to learn at an earlier age and understand the organization that I was in better. And that opportunity was there, I'll admit it, uh, but I did not do that well because I was, I was very, very focused. Uh, and it's probably due to my youth. Uh, and uh, in inexperience uh, uh, that uh, that limited me from doing that in a proper way. It took me a while, but eventually uh, I did get there and was able, because you go through a selection process uh, to be a, a flying squadron commander, a combat flying squadron commander. Uh, you go through a, a very, very competitive selection process to get promoted uh, as an officer. I was able to get promoted two years early to colonel, and that's the best you can do. Uh, so, so you know, over time, eventually I got there, uh, but it, it was a struggle for me at the very beginning. And the interesting thing, Matt, is that I didn't realize it was a struggle. I was fairly well-read, but I was well-read about, uh, from a biogra- biographical perspective on leadership and those kind of things. And I really hadn't read the principled, uh, hadn't, hadn't made a study of the principles of different leadership styles and tried to find what, what I fit into or what fit me, uh, the best, uh, and, you know, those principles are very important. Uh, uh, by the time I was a wing commander, uh, I had, I had found some good writings. Uh, that uh, that matched my leadership style. I mean, nothing's perfect, so it's not always a complete match. But uh, my my best uh, uh, thing that I've done for my subordinate leaders uh, and their subordinates too is uh, when I became a wing commander, I had a strategy session uh, to get for my leaders to get to know me. We we sequestered ourselves, went off site, did that. But the, the study material that I gave them was a book. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a book by uh, by Susan Scott. You probably read it. It's called Fierce Leadership, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and Fierce Leadership takes you through. And here's what it, when you think about it, uh, you think about it. She says, think passion, think integrity, think authenticity, and think collaboration. Think cultural transformation. That last piece, the last two pieces, collaboration and cultural transformation can't be done unless you are very politically savvy within the organizations and outside of the or externally outside of the organization uh, so that you can interact appropriately with other parts of the organizations and do your job even better or, or get your mission accomplished even better. So I think that's probably my weakest area. Uh, but it's also the area I've worked the hardest on to improve from a leadership perspective. Yeah, and I would call that strategic mingling, that networking is so critical to to have in there. And also, you know, I think of when you're thinking about political savvy, there's also that personal dimension of paying attention to things like nonverbals, that active listening, considering other people's feelings, all that stuff really fits into how we engage and and have that savviness, if you will, with with others. So I appreciate your example. You know, the second aspect of of influence is really talking about self promotion, and sometimes this is looked down upon. But really, leaders who are effective at that, they're able to cut through that noise and still be authentic, credible, and promote others while promoting themselves. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think doing it, doing that well, and you're right, it's, it's looked down upon. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I think the younger you are and, and the lower on, on the organizational ladder you are, the more you look down upon uh, 
what's called self-promotion. Uh, but uh, it's also linked very closely to political savvy from an organizational perspective. Uh, and if you don't figure those out, then you find yourself leveling off and not being able to continuously improve your unit to your organization, uh, continuously improve the ability of that organization to meet its mission and, and eventually maybe expand. You know, in the corporate world, we always want to look to, to do what we do best, the best, uh, but also look for new opportunities. Uh, uh, and, and those opportunities won't you won't see those opportunities if you're constantly uh, uh, trying to uh, figure out the linkage between political savvy uh, and the other traits. So uh, you have to work very, very hard at it. And uh, I think that uh, uh, I had a natural instinct to be able to do that. And, and, and as I said earlier, I had difficulty with the political savvy, but my instinct on the other side of the equation did help me eventually uh, link those two together and do it properly. And when I say properly, what I mean is it, self-promotion may not be the right term. It's uh, it's success promotion. I like you know? that. Uh, yes. beca- because leaders, uh, and the reason why I like the book Fierce Leadership is because I have a personality that's considered very fierce and people are intended, intimidated by me, but fierce leadership is is about the things that I said, and the two most important part are collaboration and transformation and cultural transformation. Uh, that's leadership. Uh, I mean, ultimately, that's leadership. And you can't be a meanie. Uh, you, you can't be a meanie truly, uh, even though you may have that that perception out there of you, uh, and be able to accomplish that task of leadership. You have to uh, be somebody that people want to follow. In order for you to get there, you have to promote their success. And that, that's what I learned is that, uh, you know, don't look down on, on promoting yourself if what, if what your goal is is to promote the success of the team that you're leading or the team you're part of. And that a lot of people miss. I did as a very young man uh, as a challenge. Uh, uh, but uh, as I got older, I was able to do that. And that's what led to that early promotion to colonel, which led to being a vice wing commander and a wing commander in areas that I had not really uh, had the opportunities there. And it opened those opportunities up and it, and it opened my organizations that I was leading up to be able to see new opportunities and expand uh, uh, and be able to do our, our stated mission better than anybody else. I like what you're saying because when you think about influence and you're right, political savvy ties so much to this promotion piece. And I'm a huge proponent of collaborative, collectivism, those those different schools of, of leadership thought. Even in my own research when I was doing my doctoral work, one of the one of the findings that came forth from these leaders that I was inter- interviewing was this dimension, what I called permeating boundaries, and that links nicely to what you're talking about cultural, is being able to make the shifts between different groups and in many different dimensions and somehow still be that glue between all of them and and able to pull and coalesce people together. That's that's a powerful thing to be able to do. And you just demonstrated how you were able to do that. So, you know, Rob, we're already here at a break again. So what we'll do, we're going to take a break. We'll be back here in just a few minutes.
Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you left the cage that held you back but find yourself in the wild of your life wondering, what do I do now? I'm Dr. Lisa Cooney, and today I'm going to give you the tools to answer that question. Regardless of the issue, your choices of the past no longer need to haunt you. You have the power to change that and to create from a space of fun and ease. How different can your life be? Find out. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, noon Central, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Broaden your mind. Open your heart for a greater understanding of how to express your pure and authentic nature. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Simron, author, publisher, and life mentor, broadens minds and opens hearts to a greater understanding of life, consciousness, and humanity. 1111 Talk Radio is every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. 1111 Talk Radio. You are not on a journey. You are the journey. You are experience experiencing itself. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Transformational Energy Leadership. To reach Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey or his guest today, you are welcome to call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, send it to mwoolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back. Today we're talking about leadership and the power of influence. Now, in the last segment, Rob and I were talking about having political savvy and and combining that with self and group promotion. So what I want to do, Rob, this segment here is let's dive into the third influencing skill, and that's building and maintaining a foundation of trust. And we hear that through any leader and any guru out there, trust is just an essential component. And so when you think about it, your life speaks of this, just of all the various challenges you've had or, or opportunities as well. How do you go about building trust with others, Rob? Well, you know, uh, in the military, it's really a small community. Uh, and I'll go back and tell a little anecdote about that. Uh, uh, you know, my the model that I've used the most uh, from an Air Force uh, leader perspective is a guy named General Curtis LeMay. Uh, he was known as Old Iron Pants uh, uh, because he was considered tough, gruff, uh, but fair. Uh, uh, but 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 so he had he had a difficult time. He had a, a disease called Bell's palsy that froze part of his face. He, had, he always kept a cigar in that corner of his mouth because his his mouth wouldn't smile. Uh, 
on one side. His face didn't really move on one side. So he had this look about him, which is part of your, that's part of your trust building, uh, and part of the relationship you establish with your peers, your, your superiors and your subordinates is, is the way you look and the way you come across. So, so he had that challenge and he didn't try to change that. Uh, but what he did was, uh, the first thing he did was he, he became the most skillful aviator that he could possibly uh, become. Uh, he practiced good political savvy by, uh, by networking with the right senior officers when he was a junior officer and building those skills to ensure that he built his, his organizational savvy and political savvy skills along the way. Uh, and then... Uh, how did he establish trust? Well, the anecdote that stands out the most to me is when uh, General LeMay was a very young man. Uh, he was a two-star general already. He was in charge of bombing operations in World War II, flying out of England. Uh, and the bombers were taking 30% casualties and, and those kind of things. So he came up with a new tactic system. Uh, but that wasn't the most important part about what he did, was that in order to establish trust in this new system, System, which was out of the box, innovative, and something that everybody, uh, all the professionals, so-called experienced professionals, professionals looked at and said, you're going to get more people killed. He had to walk into this situation where his direct subordinate commanders had to, had to teach and train this new tactic to their folks that were going out and flying the mission. So he had to have their trust. Well, how did he do that? He had a process called debriefing uh, with the commanders every time there was a combat mission and they returned. So all the commanders were, were, were called to the headquarters, uh, and he would walk into the room, uh, and they would do what's called a debriefing. And, and in the Air Force, uh, uh, this is our, our the model of our debriefing, but it establishes absolute trust between human beings. And here's the first thing that happens is there's no rank in the debriefing. Mm-hmm. And in Put order the title to get the door. The, his, his subordinates yeah. started, he had to talk first. And the way he did it was he, he gave his perspective of the mission, and then he started asking direct questions to the commanders. At first, who were t- intimidated because of its old iron pants, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he, he, coaxed, he coaxed the answers out of them in a the truthful answers out of them. And once that they did that a few times, that trust was established. So establishing trust, be extremely competent in your field. Show that competence. Understand that you it's your responsibility to make sure your superiors know that you're competent and know that you are leading your unit to complete its mission in the in the most competent way effective and that's two part one part is you one part is the organization and then most importantly establish trust with your immediate subordinates so that they can carry that trust and have that that uh, that trust in you carried all the way down to the lowest uh, in in the military's case ranking individual and that is a well operating extremely efficient mission oriented uh, Mostly, you know, it's going to be successful 95% of the time when the unit starts to go out and do its mission. Yeah, you packed a lot of stuff in there, and I wanted to distill it out. In the very beginning, you talked about his appearance, having Bell's palsy. And you're right, first impressions mean a lot. So it, it really, when you think about trust, 
living or looking the role, and it sounds like he, he found a way to adapt to that. Embedded in there, I would imagine that old Iron Pants here had some inspiration to him, where people did do that innovative new approach that had never been done before, and through that... He helped support and guide others, which I, I like that piece that you brought out. And and leaders who have that trust are, are very careful balancing, pushing people into areas where they're uncomfortable, but also listening and carefully listening to their concerns and feedback. So it sounds like that's what was going on there. Absolutely. And I, I left the part out. It was with the new the first mission with the new tactic, General LeMay sat in the first airplane and flew the first airplane across the target in the enemy territory. So he, he, he demonstrated to not just his commanders, but to the, all the subordinates in the entire command uh, that he had confidence in the new tactic, even though it was unusual and innovative, and that he, he put his own uh, butt on the line, so to speak. Uh, so, so that's another added value of that. And now the way I did that, uh, Matthew, I'll take my wing command experience. I, I bought a copy of the book Fierce Leadership for all of my subordinate commanders. We did an off-site uh, strategic planning session over a three-day period. Their, their homework was to read the book. Um, but the reason why I did that is because, uh, you know, as we were talking about on the break, the book, Fear, the title Fierce Leadership fits me. But when you get inside the book, I mean, here's, here's principle one. Uh, you know, 360-degree uh, anonymous feedback's good, but you've got to get back to you know, get through that and get to face-to-face feedback. I mean, that's, that's, that's good, solid leadership. That's not, that's not a, you know, uh, uh, something people are afraid of. You know, practice number two from that book is, uh, you know, you, you know, you got to hire, you know, go from hiring for int- intelligence for smarts to hiring for an intelligent person plus heart. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of things that I wanted my folks to read because I had this reputation similar to old Iron Pants. So, you know, uh, 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 my personality just wasn't one that was all, uh, you know, touchy-feely is what, the way some people would put it. It was more of a, a mission-oriented, I want to get the mission done, but what people didn't, don't understand about me that haven't worked for me before because of that reputation, and the same thing with General LeMay, is that it's the, it's the people that need to do the mission. They need to have the faith, trust, and confidence in you uh, to get that mission done when you have to ask them to do something that's probably going to cost, you know, it could cost them their lives. Uh, so you have to, you have to like, like fierce leadership practice number three, this is one of the, the one of the main ones that really caught me. And that's, uh, you know, you got to go from holding people accountable, which is good, to modeling accountability and holding people able to get the job done. And that's what General LeMay did when he got into that lead bomber the first time when that new tactic that was risky, uh, 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 he went to modeling accountability and said, see, you are able to get this done. I can do it. I will do it with you. Uh, and I'll, I'll hold myself accountable. I mean, those are the type of, uh, that's what I mean when I say fierce leadership. I don't mean a guy that looks like he's tough, and, and he is, they are, we are tough people. You, you pointed that out. All leaders are tough in a, in a certain uh, sense. But we're also yeah. people that know that getting a mission accomplished or, or being the best company in the, in the world is about the people 
that are doing that work that gets that mission done. It's and it's about the leader uh, uh, instilling in them the desire to do that. And in order to do that, you have to be good at working with your people and understand that. You know, Rob, and what you were, I like how you were talking about the first part, getting the feedback is important, yes, but that FaceTime is really critical. And that, what I really appreciate about that is leaders that I have worked with, leaders that I know who are wildly successful are the ones who also allow their vulnerabilities to be there. To uh, Even to use the phrase that you talked about before is all rank was was gone when they had those debrief meetings that it changes the dialogue and allows when when the leader says all right rob you've told me these things that are great about me i need to know something that i need to improve on so i can be even more effective and more helpful for you that speaks volumes the other piece that i like what you were talking about is when you had them read the book that helps reinforce the whole component about there's nothing more valuable than when your leader is with you, sits down, and spends time with you. Time is such a precious commodity, and that's so it just fits so much into what I subscribe to. And then I like the part about modeling accountability. I think I talk about modeling the way, walk the talk, be the leader, you know, all the time. That's just so very, very important. You know, the, there's a fourth component to influence, and we touched on this a bit with political savvy, but that's the where best leaders, they're able to exhibit network influence. What I mean, you know, because leaders, uh, they're, they're not an island. If you're, and you, you even said this earlier, if you're, you got your nose down and you're so focused on one task that you're completely disconnected from everything. And so mm-hmm. leaders who have great network influence, they're empowered by their connections with others. And what are your thoughts about the networks? Maybe something recent where you pulled some people together because it was your connections that really worked. Yeah, I mean, recency is relative, but uh, this is a very recent thing. It's it's engraved in my mind because it's very telling and compelling from a, the perspective of networking and political savvy and the weaknesses that I saw myself as an early in, in early life and as I gained experience and this was this this was one of the culminations of it that led me to realize what was going on and that is uh, as a wing commander uh, you're you're an island I mean you you are uh, they call you the nickname form is the wing king on the base because you're like a king. Okay, what you say goes uh, and those kind of things. But you do have peers around the world and around the country. And occasionally, you know, uh, those peers come together. And in those few times, you've got to adequately touch base with those peers, get yourself introduced to them, spend time with them. Networking uh, is what we call it. Uh, That's networking amongst your peers. And and I'll just tell you a little anecdote. Uh, uh, In February of 2011, uh, uh, New Mexico, I was uh, the wing commander in New Mexico. New Mexico went through one of the coldest uh, periods of time over a week that it's ever experienced. I mean, down to, to uh, below 25 degrees. Uh, well, our installation was the biggest user of natural gas uh, uh, in the entire state of New Mexico. Uh, and you can go back and, and look at the history of this, but there was a, there was a natural gas shortage in New Mexico caused by, uh, by the lines coming from the supplier over in Texas. Uh, and, uh, 
uh, and one day uh, the uh, the company of the uh, controlling the natural gas decided without telling anybody they were going to turn the natural gas off one night and they didn't even call us on the installation and let us know uh, that caused some some huge problems. Um, the housing, we had uh, about 1,100 families with houses, uh, had copper water lines built into it. Uh, they were built uh, from, from a desert perspective, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a southwestern desert perspective, but the elevation of the base is at 5,500 feet or so, almost 6,000 feet, almost a nautical mile. Uh, well, those pipes froze. And they all went through the ceilings of the houses, uh, uh, the way the contractor built these houses. And, and the next day, when it started warming up, uh, now the natural gas being turned off was an emergency uh, in and of itself for not just us, but the entire state, because we had medical facilities in the city of Albuquerque with a million people. I mean, we were all in emergency operations center mode, and we were coordinating with, I was, you know, the mayor, R.J. Berry of Albuquerque, and I were close. So, you know, whenever I needed something, I'd just pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, I don't know what's happening here, but uh, but here's what we're seeing. Can you, can you give me some advice or call the governor or, or get me in touch with the governor and those kind of things? So you had those relationships that you'd built with those folks, too. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing was the next morning, uh, after we'd, we'd found that we had the, you know, we'd gotten people into hotels almost overnight, uh, uh, not just us, but the rest of the people in New Mexico and medical facilities had to move patients to other places and those kind of things. Well, we started getting a thaw, and when the thaw started on the base, all those pipes started bursting. Oh, gosh. And leaking water down to the ceilings of all the homes. So, so you're, you got temperature in the 30s. Uh, every home, including my own, uh, has uh, spouses running out in the street going, what the heck's going on uh, uh, to do that? Uh, so once we got through the emergency and got all the water shut off, and uh, then we had to get people into hotels and figure this out really quickly. Uh, but here's where the networking came in beyond just the local networking and the state-level networking, and that is that there are not enough plumbers in the United States Air Force, and I, I had three plumbers on the base to be able to tackle the repairs that needed to be tackled to these homes. Uh, so I had to start calling my my brother and sister wing commanders and asking them if they could get bought. And all the plumbers are government civilians, so they had to volunteer. You couldn't order them to do it. See if they could get volunteers to come in and help us do these repairs to get people back in their homes and out of hotels. And all this happened very fast. Uh, but luckily, we had done that networking. And you know what? We had we turned a six-month job in with my manpower into a one-week, one-and-a-half-week job because we had volunteer plumbers from all over the United States Air Force coming in because my fellow wing commanders and I, we had networked together. And, we, and whether we knew each other personally or not, we knew what our missions were and knew that we were teammates. And Rob, great, awesome example of the power of networking. I would also contend through all these elements of influence that we've talked about that that energy must be present as well, you know, as a leader. Unfortunately, we're already at the end of our show, Rob, and I just wanted to thank you so much for coming and sharing your your insights and stories of how you helped elevate political savvy and self-promotion and group promotion, trust building and and leveraging networks. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. And if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to contact you, Rob? 
you can find me at uh, on Facebook at C O L R O B M A N E S S, and you can send a message to me on that page. That's the best way, and you can and also follow the page. Uh, we've got about a quarter of a million followers, and you can find me on Twitter at R O B M A N E S S, and follow that. Follow our Twitter line too. You may not always agree with what what we're messaging, uh, but it is me doing it, and I do respond. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Rob. And to the listening audience out there, if you've got a topic you want covered or you've got someone that you think would be a great addition on the show, please contact me at mwolsey at transformationalenergyleadership.com. So until next time, harness your positive energy and lead that transformation, and we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Transformational Energy Leadership. Please join Dr. Matthew Allen Woolsey again for another edition next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a great week.